For many of us, dragons were a large part of what initially drew us to fantasy. They're found in stories from around the world, many of which stretch far beyond the Western idea of a fire-breathing lizard on a pile of gold. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with editor Jonathan Strawn. He's edited roughly 100 books and co-hosts the Cude Street Podcast, which has been running for over a decade. His most recent work is the Book of Dragons anthology from Harper Voyager. Jonathan and I discuss some of his favorite short stories, how new readers can approach discovering short fiction, and of course, dragons. So let's jump right into it and see what Jonathan had to say. Twice a month during this great and terrible pause, the Fantasy Inn is spending 60 minutes or so with speculative fiction lovers from around the world, asking them what they're working on and, frankly, as much as we can fit into a single conversation. Today I'm spending 60 minutes or so with the wonderful and prolific editor, Jonathan Strawn. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Jonathan. (laughs) Hello, Travis. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I hope you don't mind me uh, turning your intro back on you. Not even for a second. Please feel free. <laughs> How are you, sir? I, you know, I'm, I'm doing about as well as can be expected. So I, I'd say that counts for something. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. How are things uh, over in Australia? Things are genuinely not too bad in the part of Australia I live in. I live in Western Australia, which is on the, it's the left bit. And, and Perth, which is the most isolated capital city in the, in the world, uh, is a good you know, 2,000 kilometers away from the nearest city. We have a nice buffer zone from all of the problems. So right now, things are pretty good. We're reopening this very day. All of the uh, public gathering limitations are pretty much being removed. And certainly by the middle of next month, we'll be able to have 60, 70, 80,000 people in a stadium, just nobody to come to see. And it's good. It's more sort of worrying for people who I know and what it means for the industry and all those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I do have like a formal question I typically like to start everyone off with, but uh, given the nature of your most recent anthology, I do want to start by asking you possibly the single most relevant question of this conversation. What was your favorite dragon as a kid? Oh, Gak. See, that's really tricky because I, I've thought about this a lot, right? And I don't know how much I, I had one. I mean, possibly the closest was the most obvious, which was, you know, Smaug from The Hobbit. That's the first dragon that I really clearly remember encountering. And it was only, let me think, 20, 30 years later that I actually encountered what I would call my favorite dragon in fiction, which is Lucia Shepard's The Dragon Growl. Okay. I'm actually uh, not familiar with that dragon. You're not? Oh my goodness. There's a book of stories out there called The Dragon Growl, right? And you absolutely, totally have to go read it. There's this fabulous interview with Lucia Shepard where he talks about how much he hates and despises the idea of dragons. And yet he pinned his whole career, his reputation in some ways, around this fabulous set of stories about this, you know, dragon that has been somnolent in a South American country for hundreds of years. It's as, lo- lo- you know, as large as a range of hills, and there's this culture that's built up on its back. So stories like The Scale Hunter's Beautiful Daughter and like uh, The Man Who Painted the Dragon Girl, these are fantastic stories. It's a great book. You absolutely should seek it out. I love it. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, have to check that one out sooner than later, probably. (laughs) 
fair enough. But this that, that that is my favorite as much as anything because it's caught on this. I mean, first of all, it's beautifully written, and the characters are engaging. But there's also this thing where he is turning on the fact that the dragon is the best m- metaphor, the best character to represent what he wants to do, while also really not wanting to be in love with dragons. It's kind of fun. More from the reader side of things, I feel like I hear that people are tired of dragons, they hate them, they wish they'd never see them in fantasy again, but I feel like they're very specifically tired of, like, the Western Smaug clone dragon and, like, not really anything outside of that. I I guess, but I, I guess what I'd say to that is I think the people who are tired of dragons are the people who are the most immersed in reading science fiction and fantasy, right? I think people who are entering, you know, starting to read they are entranced by all of those very dragons, whether they are Anne McCaffrey's dragons from Pern, whether they are Smaug, whether they are Wayland, Long, and Tea with a Black Dragon, whatever they are. They're entranced by that, that, that thing. The more established reader often wants something new. And to some degree, I guess that does drive the book we're talking about, this idea of finding different representations of dragons and different ways of encountering what they are today. But I think it's so archetypal, and I mean, I've seen it in the response to the book. You know, sort of people will say exactly what you're saying. So over dragons. Oh, look, new dragons. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm skeptical. That that is a good point about established fans versus new fans. Although I think I'm kind of hearing it, or when I hear it, and I mean, it's not all the time. It's occasionally, but I hear it from people who kind of have this vision of what fantasy is in their head, and maybe they've seen the Lord of the Rings on film, and maybe they watched a few episodes of Game of Thrones, and that's like their entire familiarity with the genre. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the more you read, the other thing is, the more you read into the the genre, the more you realize that the dragon, even in the simplest adventure story, is a cipher for something else. So often. So it comes down to the quality of the story, not the archetype you're using. And for those newer readers, there's so much to discover. And for, you know, long-time readers, so much more to find. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I agree with that idea that I think execution trumps idea pretty much every time. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you talk to any writer, they'll all tell you when they're not joking about riding off to an idea factory in Schenectady, that the idea is the least, is the least of the thing, right? I mean, anybody can have an idea by and large. It's what you do with it. Doing a book of stories is fine. A book of a particular type of stories is how you do it, what you bring to it, those particular stories and how they engage with readers right now and hopefully into the future. Are, are you trying to tell me that I can't come up with an idea and pitch it to a writer and then we split the profit 50-50? <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> no, I, think, I don't, know, don't know many writers who are going to really smile at you if you come and say, I've got a great idea and all you need to do is write it for me. Or editors are going, I've got a great anthology idea. All you have to do is edit it for me. We'll split the money. Uh, in fact, I've had that happen and it never works either. I've totally had that happen. Oh, really? Okay. I, I kind of was a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, kind of a bit of a parody, but I, I know it does actually happen. Yeah. I've had a couple of people come up to me in the meanwhile, and they're going, I have this idea for an anthology. Why don't you do it? Because obviously you know how to do them because you've done a couple. And then it comes with a additional thing of, and we can do it together. And you know, sometimes the ideas are actually good ideas, and I'm kind of going, well, you should just go and do it yourself, do it this way. And sometimes it's more along the lines of the idea maybe isn't as robust as you, you think it is. Well, so yeah, you've edited a couple. I think uh, you're right around the 100 mark, so that's a major milestone. But I guess kind of looking back way before all that, can you remember what started you in the beginning on the path of becoming a fan of science fiction and fantasy? Totally, absolutely, 100%. 
I was, I'm 100 years old, right? Like I'm a million years old. I was born in 1964, five years before the launch of, well, I was on the landing on the moon. And I remember, first of all, clearly watching the, the landing on the moon in 1969 here in Perth and Western Australia. And I remember Armstrong and the other two coming to Perth for like 10 minutes on a quick whip through tour and, you know, sort of being able to like touch Neil Armstrong's hand kind of thing. And that really got me interested in space and stuff. And then I stumbled across this book in my local library because I was kind of that kid who went to the local library and went looking for stuff. And I found this book called Citizen of the Galaxy by Robert Heinlein. Now, first of all, remember that it's at this point, 1972, not now. Citizen of the Galaxy still reads pretty well for now. But at that point, this story, which was, you know, it was the Count of Monte Cristo retold in space, and it was absolutely captivating. And the only thing I knew was it was written by this guy, and all the books like it had a particular colored dot on the spine. And so I went looking for more and more of those things, and I read them every single thing I could find. Read all the Heinlein, and I was captivated by the idea of getting off Earth, going into space, that, that dream of tomorrow. And it was also a time when, particularly in the early 70s, there were lots and lots of books about dreams of kind of glowy, beautiful futures where we had cities underneath the sea and Tomorrowland kind of railways everywhere and all this kind of thing, you know, the, on our way to Trantor. Different world that we had, than we actually got, but was very romantic at the time. So I was completely beguiled by that romance of the future. Can I just say that you have a significantly better memory than I do? I don't think I can remember anything from when I was that young. I don't know that I've got a significantly better memory, but I've been asked a few times. Uh, and, and, and also, it's entirely possible that I'm simply coining a better answer. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good answer, especially for someone who's been as involved with the field of science fiction as you. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's also one of those touchstone questions, and I'm sure you've had it just as a reader, and I'm sure all of your listeners who are readers have had it. You know, what's your favorite book? Where did you start reading? What was your, you know, the thing that got you to this? It just comes up in conversation. And Citizen of the Galaxy actually is a book that, you know, I've come back to, and I did reread it about three, four years ago. And, you know, I mean, allowing for the near complete absence of women, which is a bit of a negative, and one or two other small things, you know, it really, unlike later Heinlein, which is kind of ropey and weird, and it really does hold up. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I know uh, I, I've had that question a bunch of times as well, and my answer probably changes a little bit every single time, uh, mostly because I just pretty much everything I was reading, as soon as I was able to read, a lot of it had a speculative fiction sort of bent to it. Uh, so it's hard to really say like a definitive answer. I think typically I go with uh, David Eddings' The Melorian is what started me off. The Melorian? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yes, I know. I, <gasps> I, didn't, I didn't realize there was a difference. Uh, I just had an old box of books in my attic and uh, I picked up the one that said book one on the cover. You, you have pressed a button of mine because one thing I don't talk about a lot was I was an avid fantasy reader, particularly through the 80s, through that whole sort of post-Tolkien, post-first blush of Terry Brooks kind of period. So Eddings and Feist and those guys, read them a lot, Tad Williams, and I adored the Belgariad. I mean, I adored it. And then I started reading the Malorian and I despised it. I didn't dislike it. <laughs> I despised it. I felt so angry at that series that he actually did what he did. Um, that I actually sold them all off. I don't have those anymore. I got really kind of like, ah. But you love them. But then I can understand why, because it has the charm of the first series, because it's the same first series with like a prologue. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually had the flip experience. I went through, I enjoyed the Belgariad, but I was like, all of this again? 
I know, I know. Who would dare? I mean, you got to admit. I mean, you said this was a, a an adult language podcast. The guy had brass balls to, to basically take the same story and go, "Oops, got it the right. Didn't do it right. Got to do it again." And you're like, what? and again, and again, <laughs> and again, and again. So we've covered uh, your introduction sort of into the genre of becoming a fan, uh, and I imagine that in part led to your desire to become an editor. So I guess in general, how did you first become an editor? I'm about to tell you a story of strange white privilege, and I feel awkward about it, I, I'll be honest. Um, I had no interest in becoming an editor. I don't know that I understood what an editor was. I just went to a convention. I hung out with some friends, and somebody showed, there was a guy who showed up, and he's talking back then about doing your own fan scene publish your own issue was the thing, you know, pub your ish. And some friends and I met the day after this convention and one of them was bopping around saying, we should publish a thing. And everybody went, well, yeah, we should publish a thing. And I went, okay, we'll publish a thing. And we got together and we put out this magazine called Eidolon that we did for 10 years here in Australia that won some awards. And it was never really a fanzine. It was more a, what, what back then they would have called a semi-pro zine. It was like magazines of the day, like Journal Wired and whatever else, perfect bound and stuff. And even there, I was kind of like not sure what I was there for, but I was like editing in inverted commas. But that was where I got my training wheels. And then like we, the bunch of us who work in the magazine went on a holiday to America. I met somebody who worked for Locust Magazine. We fell in love and got married. But I also got to know the people at Locust at that point, who I, who I still work for after all this time. And that's where I began to get, first of all, editing experience, real editing experience. And then what happened was, I began to like just meet friends of mine, you know, like I became friends with the publisher and I met their friends and we went out for like, you know, lunch and dinner. And then, you know, it just grew sort of from there. It was this weird organic thing where there was no step where I went, oh, I'll be an editor or I'm still an editor. It's more along the lines of, I hit a point where I went, oh, I guess I could do that. And then like uh, a friend of mine, Jeremy G. Byrne, who I was working on Eidolon with, co-edited an anthology here in Australia. And then it was just a thing I did. So a mess. <laughs> yeah, it's always interesting too because you you never get like two like identical journeys into publishing, whether it's editor, writer, or whatever. Everyone just has a different story. Yeah, and I mean, as I say, when I say I'm I'm painfully aware of the privilege and feel an obligation to try to share opportunity where I can. I mean, the first books that I published that I was involved with in the United States, which were a big big thing. I went to a convention with friends. I was working for Locus. I went out to dinner with some friends and they said, we're working on this book, but we want to stop working on it. And I went, oh, okay, okay. And one of them went, do you want to do it? And I went, uh, sure, sure, I'll do that. And then I did it and 20 more years passed. I'm also curious. So as someone who acquires shorter fiction for Tor.com and Tor.com Publishing, and also uh, like we've mentioned, you've produced quite a few anthologies over the years. Uh, just how exactly does one go about finding new stories? Well, I, I think the most important thing for me is that I have two ongoing things that I do, right? I'm a reviews editor for Locus, so I'm required to keep an eye out for new books and new writers so that I can bring people in. So I am always looking around. I read reviews widely. I have book catalogs sent to me, that kind of thing. Now, for stories... Uh, I edit this series of Year's Best Anthologies. For 13 years, I did the best science fiction and fantasy of the year, first for Nightshade Books out of California, then for Solaris out of the United Kingdom. And I'm now doing the Year's Best Science Fiction for Saga Press in New York. And that means that I've basically, I'm constantly scoping for magazines, new magazines. I'm reading Asimov's and Analog and FNSF, but also 
you know, on Canny and Clark's World and Lightspeed and Strange Horizons and Beneath the Skies and Apex and Fire and Fireside and all these other magazines are out there and others that I'm not even mentioning, all of whom I apologize to. So I'm constantly reading widely because I have to put together a year's best because I have to put together help work on the Locust recommended reading list every year. And I'm aware of that from like the 1st of January. I know I have to do it the next year. And so I'm constantly looking, and that means that I just see stuff. And then, you know, you read a story. I read the story uh, Mother Tongues by S.Q. Liu that appeared in Asimov's a couple of years ago, which was great and should have won the Hugo, and everyone was wrong when it didn't. But anyway, <laughs> and I fell in love with their work, right? And so then I reached out and I got asked them if they would write for Tor.com, and so they wrote a story for Tor.com. Now they're writing novellas for Tor.com. Uh, and also, I mean, people frankly become aware because I've been around for a while. So I do get people, you know, going, Hey, are you open? Could I send you a story? Would you be interested? The answer is pretty much always yes. I'm constantly scanning for new writers and new names and reading anthologies, reading short stories, and just trying to find new people. It's just a really time consuming thing. Yeah, I, I can imagine, especially uh, if you're trying to keep up with reading longer fiction as well at the same time. Very much. I mean, I have, I've, I'm not only do I feel an obligation, but I need to do it for my reading sanity. I realized that a while ago. You know, if I don't read novels, I just begin to go a little bit batty. So, you know, I have this period. Usually we finish up the Locust recommended reading list in about mid-January. And I finished uh, the year's best late January now. And then so February, March, April are my, my novel reading months. So I'm, you know, casting around and spending time catching up on what I missed last year. And then, you know, what I might be able to read now. So I've already read I've already read my three favorite books of 2021, I, I think. And, so, <laughs> yeah. and that's sort of how that goes. So yeah, I'm, yeah. but it is, it is time consuming. And then once you've found all these stories and say you're putting them into an anthology, uh, something I kind of always wonder about, and I've never really put a ton of thought into it, but I imagine you do, uh, is just how do you assemble a table of contents for an anthology? Well, Okay, first of all, there's a simple a theory that I'll try to get through quickly, which is there's, the, there's a tentpole theory that you pick the three best stories in the book, you put the best story at the front, the second best story at the end, the third best story in the middle. That's roughly it. And that's supposed to uh, pull readers in, keep them going, and then send them out feeling good at the end of the book. That's roughly it. And then you avoid thematic repetition and things that will clash too much in any kind of weird way. And for a good chunk of time, I was persuaded by that. But eventually what I began to realize was reading an anthology, if you are the person who reads it from front to back, and a lot of people don't, they just cherry pick and there's no point worrying about that. But if you read it from front to back, it's actually, you know, it's a seduction. It's a, you want to draw someone in, you want to hold them, you want to keep them going. So what I really look at are, are the beats of it. What's the most inviting, engaging story at the beginning, which also, and this is critical if you're dealing with a theme anthology, clearly delivers on the theme. So for an example, if you're going to do the Book of Dragons, you want a story that's engaging, fun, has a welcoming voice that clearly has a dragon in it, you know, not a metaphorical dragon, not a literary illusion dragon, but an actual dragon, boof, right at the beginning. Um, I tend to put the longer stories towards the back of the book. I feel like people are willing to settle in by that point. At the beginning, it's my feeling they're going to want variety, so I'm trying to move you back and forth between different kinds of things a little bit, whilst keeping it a smooth, kind of coordinated reading experience. That's sort of how I approach it. So it's like I, I read everything multiple times. I sit there with a spreadsheet and just 
dropping titles back and up and down a list, trying to work it out. Going, well, that's plainly going to be like the longest story in the book's going to be the second longest story in the the end, second story from the end, and then let's work out everything else. And you know, it comes together. As someone who appreciates spreadsheets, I think uh, I would probably be doing a similar process. <laughs> uh, what about like from a reader's perspective? Imagine, I guess, they're a complete novice to short fiction. They haven't read that much. I mean, it can be kind of hard to know where to find it in the beginning. And then sometimes the actual act of reading short fiction, it's just so different from a longer work like a novel. Uh, It takes kind of a different headspace. Do you just have any advice on how to approach reading short fiction for the first time? Sure. I I think the first thing I'd say is if you are consciously saying, I'm going to read short fiction, try to mentally set aside the idea of immersion as the reward you're going to get. This is going to deliver you an idea, a character, a concept. So embrace that side of things as much as you can. You're going to get that. Then try and pick a good time of day. I mean, I personally think the best time to read short fiction is just before bed. The time where you want one whole thing that you can consume completely and then get to an end and have that delivered for you. And I think that works well. Then when it comes to how you find the stories to start with, I actually think, all of my own personal best interest aside, that year's best kind of books are a pretty good way of finding things. So whether you're going to go to, say, a Neil Clark year's best, or an Ellen Datlow year's best, or a Rich Horton year's best, or one of mine, or some, or John Joseph Adams, or some, somebody else entirely, what I really think is they will give you a, a smattering of stuff to try, a selection. And then you can then go from there and dive further into collections by particular writers, theme, anthologies, that kind of thing. You make a good point where there's a lot of different people writing yours best. So I guess I'm curious for you, what makes that best quality for a story? Like, how do you know when you see it? Oh, you know, you know immediately. Uh, What it is, is it's the impact the story makes at the time, and then whether later you remember it clearly. You know, if I read a story once in February, and then I'm going back through a list of stories to consider for the year's best, and in October, I can tell you what it was still about, then it was a pretty strong story, you know, honestly. And there are stories, you know, this year, stories last year, the year before, stories that made a real bang when they came along. I just read them. There are stories that I read in 1986 that I haven't reread since 1986, and I remember clearly, uh, because they had that much impact. That's actually a perfect segue, because I did want to ask you, are there any particular stories that still like have really stuck with you over the years? Like Any specific ones you want to name? Oh, sure. To me, a story like R&R by Lucia Shepard, which is a uh, Vietnam War analogy story that came out in 86 in Asimov, is an incredible, intense story. I remember very clearly reading Kim Stanley Robinson's Escape from Kathmandu for the first time, which was a novella, and it's funny when his work isn't always funny. I would strongly, 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 strongly recommend almost any of the mid-period work of Howard Waldrop, but particularly a story like Do You Do You Want to Dance, Octavia Butler, I mean, anything of hers just about. Um, Le Guin's, uh, you know, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas and uh, the name of the, the naming of, I forget the title now, but her work is just incredible. So stories like those, and, you know, honestly, I could sit for an hour and just shoot names at you and it wouldn't be meaningful, but it would be accurate. I'm constantly encountering stories that that linger with me. That's why I'm still working in short fiction after all these years. Right. I guess that's one of the most exciting about uh, fiction in general. For me, biasedly, definitely speculative fiction. Uh, there's just so much amazing writing out there. So we've 
sort of talked about dragons for a bit. We've danced around the topic a bit, but kind of maybe seems like a silly question. Uh, what's the pitch for the Book of Dragons? <laughs> if it's not just in the name. <laughs> well, actually, the original one almost was there was going to be a book of dragon stories. But then I, I guess what it was was this. Uh, a dear friend of mine, very dear friend of mine, two dear friends of mine, did a book called The Dragon Book about 12 years ago. And it was a book of dragon stories for its time. And I thought, well, don't we need a book that brings together stories that are really resonant now, that represent a variety of viewpoints that are inclusive, that have different backgrounds, all this sort of thing. I wanted to reach out around the world as much as I could, uh, at least through my, the people that I know, and bring in dragons from different traditions, different cultures. So the pitch, the core pitch to HarperCollins, when I put it out to them was, I have these great people who are going to bring a batch of, of dragons from around the world and put them in one place and make it all fresh and new. Because that's the thing. I mean, we, we start at the very top of this talking about, you know, how you make things new. And this is what you do. You, you get that snapshot for 2020 and say, here we are, look at this, you know. And so for me, looking at this other dragon book, a dragon book that I'd done myself, which is a reprint, one of old stories, they had me going, I love that, but I was also reading stuff by people like Sen Cho and Elliot de Bodard and Saad Hussain and some other people and going, there's something else here. I really want to see that. And I'm not really seeing that in a single book. And HarperCollins were just as beguiled about it as I was. And so we got to do it, you know? Yeah, I definitely think uh, from recently finishing the book that there is that breadth and that depth to the stories that you don't really see all that compiled in one place normally. Uh, you, it's not that common, but you know, I'll genuinely say I think that's changing. I think you'll see more and more and more of that. There have been some fabulous diverse anthologies over the last five or ten years. I'm thinking of like there's Nisi Scholl did a book called New Sons. Uh, there's a book called The Gin in Love by Mavesh Murad. There's some books out of Comic Press in the UK. There's a few others around. There's some YA ones, some great YA ones. And they're inclusive and diverse. And so you're seeing more and more of it. And there's more of a thirst from it at a publisher level, which is really important. The, the publishers see that readers want this kind of diversity. And so we're going to be able to give it to people. I've said this a bunch of times before, but I really feel like blessed to be like living in this time for the SFF stories that we're getting. Like it feels kind of like a golden age. <laughs> yeah, I just had this conversation uh, that you may or may not be aware of with Gary Wolf on uh, the Cooch Street podcast about your personal golden age when you first encounter stuff and then whether this is genuinely a golden age of, of sorts. And I think it meets all the criteria. There's fabulous work. There is a willingness to break everything down and start over and the real golden ages I think have that in it. So I think being open to that diversity of viewpoint, that itself is enough to make it a golden age, I think. So when I was looking through your website, I stumbled on something and I'm curious to see your answer for this. So nearly a decade ago, someone asked you if you'd ever plan on an anthology project that includes poetry. <laughs> uh, and you said you wouldn't because you're no judge of poetry and that's not where your interests lie. And yet... The Book of Dragons stands out because it does have poetry uh, by some genre greats, too, such as Jane Yolen, Joe Walton, Amal El-Mutar, just to name a few. So what made you change your mind? That's, a, that, that's like a really good question to, that deserves a really good answer. Let me see if I can craft one on the fly. Um, I think what it was was I wanted, I wanted more in there. You know, I've done a lot of anthologies that are purely prose and that meet some very 
personal, specific prejudices about what I like to read. I don't like reading short, short fiction generally, and I don't have not particularly enjoyed poetry. But I thought, you know, you have to start pushing. I mean, all the time, you've got to be pushing and changing what you're doing. So I thought, well, what about if you bring in poetry? What about you recognize this and try and come to terms with it? And I'll be honest with you, I was an utter coward about this. I didn't open up to general submissions for poetry. I went to people who, as you say, are already very skilled and very admired and have won awards for their poetry. That's why it is, you know, the people you mentioned and C.S.E. Cooney and Theodora Goss, because they're all award-winning poets. And I thought, well, even if I don't know, they'll carry me through. And it, I think it does give a different feel to the book. It breaks it up. It brings a different tone that I really like. It's something that I would hope I could do again in the right space. And I'm really happy with that. They, they gave me some great poems. As someone who uh, is also not as versed in poetry, I definitely think it stood out to me. And it kind of, I have to take a step back and sort of wrap my head around the poem and sort of take some time to appreciate it. And I think that's kind of probably part of the beauty of poetry in the first place. Yeah, I would agree. I think that it does take you to read a different way. Uh, I mean, it, it's largely meant to be read aloud quite often, so that changes how you approach it. And I think when you put, when you put it into a book like uh, The Book of Dragons, it does give the reader a different headspace, and that's good. And, you know, and for the readers who are not engaged, they can read all the stories. I mean, you get a lot of poetry in a little space. And that's, I suppose, another way of sort of breaking up kind of the flow instead of just story, 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 story throughout the entire anthology. Well, yeah, I mean, in this case, it, it, it was a, I want more voices in there, you know. I want more. I want people to hear differently and to listen differently and to read differently and to think differently about this. And the more people I bring in, the better that is. And HarperCollins were happily on board with it, which was great. And the poets delivered, which was phenomenal. And yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll do it again. So... I didn't actually get to appreciate this part because I had an electronic copy to read. Uh, but my understanding is there's actually going to be art, like full illustrations for most of the stories, if not all of them. What there is, is there's a spectacularly beautiful wraparound dust jacket. And there are what they call spot illustrations, which are black and white sketch style illustrations for each peach piece done by the award-winning Melbourne artist Ravina Kai, who has done just a gorgeous job. She's an incredible talent, and the cover is gorgeous, and the art is, is lovely. It's a, the, the book itself is supposed to be a beautiful object, and it really is. Yeah, there's a reason why, as soon as I finished my review copy, I then turned around and pre-ordered the hardcover. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that, doing that. <laughs> doing my uh, very small part to what I understand is ensuring it's already getting a second printing and it hasn't even come out yet for us, at least at the time of this recording. That's, that's true. I mean, we're in an interesting sort of little window. I just found out last night that it's been re going out back to be reprinted, which is wonderful. This is a, a very strange time for books to be coming out. And I couldn't be more grateful for the support, the pre-ordering the book's got, the, or the reviews. It's just come out yesterday in the United Kingdom, I believe. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting. Absolutely. So sort of 
looping back to something we mentioned a little earlier, we mentioned uh, people just starting out with short fiction. Uh, they weren't that familiar with it. But this talk of sort of how we can shake things up and do things differently, both in just structuring an anthology and also kind of in the SFF world in general, what about someone who's looking to take it to the next level? Either they already read hundreds of short stories a year and they want to know what else is there, or maybe they enjoy short fiction, but they're like, you know, there's something I'm missing about how to fully appreciate this. So do you have kind of any advice for someone on how to take their short fiction reading to the next level? Wow. Um, hmm. Uh, you, you mean to get a more intense reading experience? I, I, I guess. Uh, sure, yeah. Is, is, is that, is that, if that's what you mean, I would say, you know, I think you have to invest. You have to commit. You have to chase and uh, chase different you know, write, writers and read deeply. I guess that's the best kind of answer I have to that. If you mean as a career to be involved, I don't know. I think it, you... You just have to commit. Again, it's one of these things. You have to sit there and go, I'd like to do this thing, and then allow that you can just do it. You may think the world won't let you do it, but quite often it does, or at least that's been my admittedly privileged experience, that if you're dumb enough to say, I could probably do that, you'll probably be allowed to. Speaking from the career side of things, I know it seems like common advice for aspiring writers used to be start in the short fiction market. I don't know if that necessarily uh, is as prevalent of common knowledge today. I don't know. Do you think that's changed over the years? Everything has changed. Nothing's like it was and everything's just like it was. I think the best advice, which is probably meaningless, is write what you're going to write and have it be what it's going to be. I want to tell you that it's a good idea to write short fiction first, and it can be. Some people need to write through stuff just to get ideas out of their system and to get different styles out of the system and to find out who they are as a writer. And sometimes short fiction can be a really good path to that. You can learn good skills. And sometimes you just naturally are a short story writer. But I think really what it's going to be is don't worry about the whole writing short fiction first thing. Just write. You know, find that story that's going to resonate for you and try it out different ways. And it will come together, you know. Don't worry to what people are telling you. Yeah, I think that's probably good advice. And so I guess taking a step a little bit beyond just talking about the Book of Dragons, if you couldn't tell from the start of this chat, I'm a big fan of the 10 Minutes With conversations you've been having on the Cude Street podcast lately. Uh, I think it's been a great addition to your usual content, and it's introduced me to quite a few new, well, new-to-me authors. Uh, so what's it been like putting out an episode a day for these past couple of months? It has been far more of a joy than a chore. Um, most of the things that I've been involved with doing, I don't think through. And I certainly didn't think this through when I suggested it to Gary. I mean, when we decided we were going to do the Cood Street podcast in the first place 10 years ago, I was like, we could try doing a podcast. And then like a chump at the end of it, I said, and we'll be back next week. And it was like, oh, I guess we're doing one every week. And we did for a chunk of time. With this, I, I kind of went, how about we try this? We'll just call people up, talk to them about, about what they're reading, and we'll do one every day. And he was like, sure, because I said, they're 10 minutes. How long can that take? Admittedly, I'd forgotten all about the time it takes to edit them and to do the show notes and that stuff, which takes far longer than the actual time to record. But I've got to say, it's worth it. Not, I mean, you, you say that for you, it's been a chance to encounter new writers, which is a real part of this or part of the intention for it. But for me, it's been a chance to stay sane during a very difficult time, to reach out and talk to a whole range of people that I wouldn't have otherwise, to glimpse into different worlds, to just touch base. So I've spoken to 
longtime friends, people I barely know. It's been invigorating. It's been a joy. I mean, that said, life here is getting back to normal and what was going to be, you know, one a day until we fell on it, fell over and weren't able to do it to suddenly we've done 90 every day now. So probably a hundred will be it. We'll get to episode a hundred and then we'll see what to do with the format because it's been great. It's freed Gary and I up a little bit. We normally talk together and we're in different time zones. He's in Chicago. I'm in Perth, West Australia. So this allows us to just talk to other people and bring it together. Um, and so we'll probably keep that, but it's just a matter of how we're just working it out right now. I suppose in a way it's kind of like, at least from my experience as a listener, it's kind of like that short story experience where you're getting sort of bite-sized introductions to a wide variety of authors and their work. And I guess in podcast format, their personalities um, and everything like that, even down to what they're reading. And, and look, it's been that for me too. Even when I've known people, it has been a bite-sized experience for the people who I'd never spoken to before. Um, Alex Harrow, I hadn't spoken to before. I hadn't spoken to Saad Hussain or Indra Pramit Das before or Usman Malik or a bunch of other people. And so I, I got to meet them and say hi. Some people I hit it off with and put out a 35-minute episode of the 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, I had a fabulous conversation with Simon Ings and it was wonderful, you know. Uh, the, the conversation with Alex Harrow could have gone on for 40 times as long as it did because she was so much fun. So that's been a joy. So, yeah. Um, and that's, I guess, what we want to bring back to the podcast because when you've been doing it for 10 years, right, you're looking for ways to make it fresh. And you can see, if you look back, or at least I can see, that there are times when we've got a little bit tired and we fall into conversational habits you get ticks you get things that you always fall to we talk far too much about awards and a few other things and this pushes us away from that and i think that's great and i think i mean gary can speak for himself but i think it helps it's helped keep my worldview fresher and i think he'd say it's you know freshened his up a little bit as well and i guess so i mean you've said this has been going on for nearly 10 years or so uh any key takeaways you've learned over that decade uh, that Gary and I can talk for an hour about anything. <laughs> that conversation in an interview has a natural structure and you can follow it if you're paying attention. Uh, that, that the people who create fiction genuinely love it. That we are terrible at technology and record badly. That, you know, uh, that, it, that it's just a thing. It's, it's, it's a connection. I mean, the core of that, of that podcast is my friendship with Gary. And it is because we live in different countries and time zones. It gives us that as a regular thing. So that's valuable. And, you know, so it's like, I mean, takeaways, it's, it's reaching out to people. I mean, the people are takeaways, the weird experiences, you know, to be in a convention on the other side of the planet, wearing no badge and of somebody say, Oh, you must be so-and-so because they know your voice. That's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, but mostly that all the people who are working in our field are passionate about it and love it and are generally, genuinely well-intentioned about it. Yeah. That's what, I think that's what I would take away. So you did in a relatively recent episode on the podcast, you talked with Gary a bit about potential changes that might be uh, happening in the podcast moving forward. So I guess, is there anything new that you guys are considering for the future direction of Cood Street? 
I would I would make it clear this this is sort of considering, but the, the way I kind of see it evolving right now are is that Gary and I do one episode together every two weeks, and I think we will keep doing that for the foreseeable future. We've got no intention of changing that, and th- some of those will be long form conversations where we talk to other people. I know we're planning on bringing Alex Harrow back, and we're going to talk to Kim Stanley Robinson and some other people, and that will give us a chance to dive more deeply into some of the things we've jumped around on in the 100 episodes of 10 minutes. We're also, I think, going to morph 10 minutes into something along the lines of, uh, and here's something else. And for 10 or 15 minutes, one or other of us will talk to somebody else about something relevant. And it'll either be added to the podcast, or it may be that we'll put out a regular, maybe couple of uh, 10 minute episodes per week and just keep doing that as well because it is that separate thing where it allows us to do things solo and find out different things and spend time so and also i've been looking for and i and gary has as well but uh we've been looking for a way to bring more people into the podcast more diverse voices who maybe are earlier in their careers and don't have as much of their own work to talk about and it seems like the shorter episodes are a great way to do that, to capture people early in their careers as well. So I think that will be part of the role of those short podcasts going forward, yeah. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment. That, I mean, you know, we're coming up on episode 500 or something. That won't be too far away. And then we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, wow. 500, that's, that's a huge milestone. Hmm. I'd never thought we'd get to it. I didn't think we'd get to 100. And I certainly didn't think we'd go from, you know, 360 to 460 between now and Christmas, you know, or as, as we have. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot. Uh, but as a listener, it's been nice to have that content, especially, you know, in sort of that bite-sized package. Yeah, look, I think it's been, it, it was a thing for its time. I think that first three months or so of the pandemic was a time when people wanted, responded to something that was regular and not too demanding and wasn't us just squirrel you know, rabbiting away the way we do about awards and stuff that obsess us. So I think, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, not to uh, be too on the nose or anything, but what are you currently reading and anything good you'd recommend? <laughs> okay. Yes, 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 yes. I am always reading. Um, I am reading a batch. We're working on a batch of novellas for Tor.com right now, and they are kind of obsessing me because I have to get them and want to get them edited and out into the world. But I just read very late to the show, Arcady Martins, A Memory Called Empire, which was fabulous. It's up for the Hugo and would be a pretty darn worthy winner, I think. And then about a little while ago, I read the second novel from Alex E. Harrow, uh, a book called The Once and Future Witches, which is kind of suffragette witches in an alternate Salem. And it's this big, wonderful, deep, immersive book, and it's great. I mean, it is genuinely fabulous, and I loved it. And the other book, which I'm actually, it isn't even out yet, and I'm about to reread it, I love it that much, is a book called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And it is the book of our time. It's, you know, a remarkable book about about how we might get from where we are to a world that we'd want to live in over the next hundred years or so in a way that seems intense and confronting and smart and kind of brilliant. So yeah, that's what I've been reading. 
I will say, after listening to the Cute Street podcast, I am definitely feeling it's past time for me to try a book by Kim Stanley Robinson. So maybe that'll be the one. Maybe, maybe. There's there's a lot. I mean, you know, he is, I would make the case that he's the best science fiction writer of my lifetime. And books like 2312, The Three Californias, um, The Mars Trilogy, they're all have, have, have their, their joys and pleasures and uh, intense rewards. And I would recommend him very strongly and his short fiction. I mean, admittedly self-interest, but I edited a best of Kim Stanley Robinson a while ago and his short fiction's fabulous. Go read, go read Black Air, right? It won the World Fantasy Award, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. And it's great. Genuinely a great story. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll start with Black Air then. And so for better or worse, restrictions and lockdowns around the world are starting to lift, but uh, these are still highly unusual times we live in. So what do you recommend for others to read? Well, this feels like a familiar question. Um, I think I am taken by the read what you're drawn to argument. Personally, I have found an odd mix of crime fiction and Terry Pratchett is what uh, consumes me. I haven't read a lot of crime fiction, and I certainly haven't read a lot of stuff by one writer at a time in a long time. But if you've been listening along, you'll know that I read a series of six books by Adrian McKinty, um, crime novels starring or featuring a a detective, Sean Duffy, set in Belfast in the 1980s. And they were brilliant. I just inhaled those and the work of Don Winslow. And I also pulled up some old Terry Pratchett and there is a a joy and a pleasure in finding something that is inviting and warm and funny and decent and good in a time like this. And so, yeah, that, that that's where I've been turning and where I would recommend people turn if they're looking for something. And I suppose stepping outside of particularly relevant for just this current time, but are there any Australian writers that you think more people should be reading? Many, 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 many. Yes. If you are reading hard science fiction and you don't read Greg Egan, then you're not reading hard science fiction, so read Greg Egan. But I would also recommend Garth Nix and Sean Williams and Isabel Carmody, and I would recommend Claire McKenna, and I would recommend, oh boy, so many people. There are lots and lots. Go pull up um, something like The Legends of Australian Fantasy and uh, look look there. Um, Try Trudy Canavan if epic fantasy is your thing. Um, middle grade writers. Try Justine Larbolestier, who writes smart, dark, punchy work, um, and has written several uh, a trilogy of of, fan, of middle wire fantasies and some other good stuff. So there's just a plethora of people. You know, if you ask me, what are my favorite Australian written books of the last short period? I would say Sean Williams' Her Perilous Mansions, which I just started reading, is great. Um, I also read a book called The Left-Handed Booksellers of London by Garth Nix. And by all means, enormous asterisk, these are people that I go on holiday with, so you can take it as, you know, I may be prejudiced, but I really kind of love those books. Oh, and of course, James Bradley. James Bradley, who is smart, way smarter than I am, and has a book out called Ghost Species, which is great. So, yeah. And uh, I noticed you just casually dropping some of these books that are still not out for a few months. So definitely not jealous at all. <laughs> well, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, I, I live in a world where I'm immersed in publishing, and so books come to me early. In fact, the real problem is that, and it's a, it is a privilege, as I, you know, sort of problem to have, 
you lose track of when they actually come out because you read them some time ago. Um, and people are sort of saying, well, what, you know, such and such just came out and you're going, ah, oh. and sometimes in, in some cases you read it two years earlier, you know, depending on what it is. So, but yes, I can say there are some great books coming out. It is, this drives my friend and the publisher for Locust crazy because at the beginning of the year, she'll go, oh, I don't think it's going to be a good year for books. I'm going, it's going to be a great year for books. It's going to be <laughs> great. There's this and there's this and there's this. And she goes, oh yeah, okay, okay. And it is. It's a, it's a terrible year. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, so we're, it's not even July and it already feels like it's eight years since the 1st of January, but the books that are coming out are great. Just genuinely great. I couldn't recommend them more. And there's more and more I could point, I could name a dozen that are either out uh, in the first six months of the year or about to come out, all of which are great and I'd strongly recommend. So yeah. Yeah, I guess now that I think about it, I'm actually in the middle of reading a new Australian writer book at the moment as well. Uh, we Ride This Storm by Devin Madsen, which uh, you're reminding me because I did actually read that two years ago. <laughs> and so it just came out uh, uh, earlier this week, I think. So there you go. See? Yeah. Funny how, funny how publishing works. It is a funny game. Uh, I noticed it the most when I, I spent a year living in uh, Oakland, California, working for Locust Magazine. And that's where I saw the cycle where, you know, you would hear a book was going to be written, then you'd hear it had been sold, then you'd see a manuscript go past, then you'd see some advanced review copies go past, then you'd see a cover go past. And by the time the, the physical book showed up in a store, it felt like it must have come out a year and a half ago. It's a very odd way to encounter books, but it's not bad. Yeah, it's, it's an odd thing, and it's also a good problem to have. Yeah, well, look, I have to tell you, when it comes to this space, I've been insanely lucky. So any other current or future projects that you'd like to talk about? Sure. I mean, I've got three books out this year that are anthologies of mine. There's a book that snuck out earlier in the year that I'm intensely proud of called Made to Order. It came out from my friends at Solaris. It's an anthology of new original science fiction stories about robots, and it takes robots as a metaphor for, for people and work in a modern time. And it's, again, that whole point of diverse people, people like Vinaji Min Prasad and people like Daryl Gregory and uh, whoever else are in the book, and I, you know, Toshian Yobuchi, so much others. And I really love it. It's, it's just a really great book. It came out in April, which is a dreadful time for any book to come out, you know, uh, given the pandemic. And I think so it got overlooked, but I love it. There's the Book of Dragons, obviously. I have the year's best science fiction, volume one, coming out in September. And I'm very proud of it. It, it, it again has been, I mean, the guiding light in everything that I'm reading right now is this idea of trying to reflect the world more. And so the year's best science fiction tries to do that. And then I'm working on a plethora of, no of novellas, some of which have been publicly announced, Fireheart Tiger by Elliot de Bodard, which is coming out next year. Uh, the Past is Read by Catherine M. Valenti, which is coming out next year. The Album of Dr. Moreau by Daryl Gregory. Kundo Wakes Up by Sardisane. These ones, they're all coming out and I've been working on those and they are in various states of completion. And I also have another anthology that I have to deliver in January called... Uh, some, someone in Time, which is a time travel romance anthology. And then I've got books I'm trying to sell, but those are kind of, you know, further down the pipe. So you've mentioned quite a few projects already, but on that note, how do you juggle so many projects at the same time? Badly. <laughs> very, very badly. <laughs> That's how I juggle so many projects. Um, I commit impulsively. I 
focus closely and I do a thousand bits one after the other, if that makes sense. I have lots of to-do lists and everything is broken down into, you know, kind of edit this today, send that follow email, uh, write this proposal, edit this, edit this, read this. And I try and keep a, stru- a structured period of time in the day when I'm reading because that's otherwise I just get too far behind. So in the evening after a certain time, I'm reading for a couple hours every day as well. And it kind of lurches along. And then every now and again, someone will go, we really, really, really need this by such and such a time. And I'm going to go, ah, drop everything. And then I get that done. Because what I've generally found, at least for me over the last 15 years, is when pushed, I can produce. So like I've had a publisher turn around to me and say, that anthology you're putting together, which we said we needed in three months, we need it on next Friday. And I've put together a 200,000 word anthology in a week and a half, you know? So if you can turn around fast, then, then that's, that's how I do it. Yeah, uh, I, I also work best under pressure, but that's normally uh, my own fault for procrastinating. Uh, it sounds like that's kind of outside of your control. Uh, no, look, no, no, no. I procrastinate like crazy. And I absolutely, totally procrastinated through the, uh, a couple of months of the pandemic. I lost a few months to just, I can't focus. I can't think about anything. And sometimes it's like, oh, I could edit this, but I can go out and have lunch with the family instead or whatever it might be. So I procrastinate like hell, and then I focus. And sometimes it's, you know, the very nice people I work with, you know, sort of quietly going, um, we really need you to do that thing you said you'd do. Can you, are you still doing it by Monday? And you're going, uh, uh, can we make Wednesday work? And they go, yeah. And they go, here you go, boom. And I get it done. So yes. Um, I don't know that it makes me always the easiest person to work with, but I do my best. And so the way I've been closing out all these interviews, uh, and it increasingly feels kind of poor timing, but maybe less so for you since Australia has handled this whole general world situation better than the US. But what's just one thing you're really excited about right now? In fiction or in the world? Either one. I'm going to go with just the thing that's come up through this whole conversation is diversity and newness of, of connect, connecting to different places and different people and different stories. It genuinely has me excited. I mean, of the hundred episodes of, of, you know, the 10 minutes with, of which I did about half, the, in some ways, the ones that excited me the most were where I was contacting different parts of the world and getting a window into that part of the world that I'd encountered, never encountered before. So I'm excited by the world, you know, I'm excited by things that are new and different and by getting different people involved uh, about what's happening next, you know? Um, in, in fiction, you know, I mean, I admit I'm not excited about awards anymore, but I am excited about books. I'm excited about diverse stories. And it seems kind of like a pat thing to say, but, you know, that and, 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 and a new bright, shiny idea, whenever a new bright, shiny idea pops up and I think it's going to work, that fills me with excitement as well. So that sort of vague thing, that's what I'm excited about, the world. Well, Jonathan, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the Fantasy End podcast. Thank you very much, Travis. I've enjoyed it intensely. You can find Jonathan Strawn on Twitter as at Jonathan Strawn or at his website, jonathanstrawn.com.au. The Book of Dragons is full of incredible stories, poetry, and artwork from some of the most recognizable names in the genre. It's also an incredible anthology for discovering your next favorite author. 
As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We're just a few dollars away from everyone having their own microphone. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.